Have you ever thought about why it is that the center of our worship service is the preaching of the word? There's a reason for it. If you go to, a, for instance, a Roman Catholic church, the center of the worship service is not the preaching of the word. It's the celebration of communion because they think that that is how the grace of God is infallibly imparted to everyone present. We don't believe that. We believe that God uh, has placed the preaching of the word at the center of the worship service appropriately because those ancient words have power. There's a spiritual force locked in our Bibles. And when the people of God come together on the Lord's day and the man of God stands in the pulpit and preaches the word of God rightly to the people, there is a divine supernatural transaction. His word goes forth and it accomplishes in the lives and hearts of his people all that he purposes for it to do. The Bible says that the word never comes back to God empty or not having accomplished what he wanted it to do. So this is the central act of our Sunday morning precisely because this is how God changes his people. It's how he calls the, the dead to life and the errant to repentance and gives us comfort and hope when we need it. Uh, our text this morning is Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. It's the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Father, we ask this morning that your book would live for us and that it would be that which changes our hearts, leads us to repentance, leads us to understanding, leads us to wisdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week uh, we discussed the first commandment, and if, uh, if you're interested at all, there were, I think, three sermons before that, you can listen to them online, um, that were um, sort of preliminary introduction to the, the, the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, and how to understand it, and what it does and doesn't do, and what it does and doesn't mean. Um, you can go back through those, but last week we talked about the first commandment, and, we, and I want to say to you that... Um, the first commandment is primarily concerned with forbidding the worship of a false god. The second commandment is concerned with forbidding the worship of the true God in a false manner. Now, it's also reinforcing the first commandment in that you should not bow down to statues of foreign gods and idols and things like that. But at the center of our issue, as people who inhabit something called Christendom, where the Christian faith has been the backbone of our culture for oh, over 1,500 years, um, our biggest concern is the worship of the true God in the wrong way. 
Now, I'm going to say some things this morning that are peculiar to Presbyterian and Reformed Christians. In other words, we're, this, these are some things that are like our stuff. And, um, and, and I want to tell you that so that you can be aware. If you come from another tradition or background, you can just say, oh, well, that's their stuff. Um, and that's fine. But also the, to, to get, ask you to begin thinking, um, are we correct in this or not? You, you, I really want you to own these things for yourselves. Are we correct in this or not? This commandment, as we understand it, forbids the setting up of an image for religious use or worship. But it also goes beyond that, a point that we'll explore later in this sermon. And the commandment is very straightforward in what it says. It says you will not use images of God in worship, whether they would be paintings or frescoes or statues or icons, stained glass windows, abstract representations such as animals or symbols. Why does God command this? Well, God commands this because it is impossible to make a true image of the living God. Because by definition, anything you make will be inadequate because he is infinite in all of his perfections and any image you make is finite. So the image that you make may not be false in that small part of God's nature that it does portray, but it will be false in the sense that it cannot portray the whole. And here is where the problem is. Because it cannot portray the whole, God has commanded that we not even try. Because a portrayal of only part of God will lead people astray. Because of what it leads out. I will always remember when I was pastoring a little Presbyterian church, it was when I was in seminary at Bethel Seminary in Minneapolis, and I was pastoring this little Presbyterian church in Hager City, Wisconsin, right across the river from Red Wing. It's a great metropolis of a place. You'll all know it well. And um, there was a guy that started to come to church with his fiancée. I was supposed to do their wedding. And um, he began, he'd been raised in the Lutheran church, you know, went to Sunday school as a kid and all that. Um, everybody up there is Lutheran. And um, he started reading the New Testament. And he started with the book of Matthew. And he came back to me after a couple of weeks, and he was surprised. Because the Jesus he met in the New Testament was different than the Jesus that he had met in Sunday school, and in particular in the pictures of Jesus that had formed his impressions of who Jesus is in his Sunday school in childhood. And he came to me, and he was surprised, and he said, man, Brian, Jesus was mean. He was mean, and this shocked him. Now, did those little Sunday school pictures of Jesus capture one aspect of Jesus' personality? Absolutely they did. But he kept only being presented with that aspect of Jesus' personality. And the question is, why? Why didn't he get any pictures of Jesus like you see him in Revelation chapter 1? And he scares the pants off of his own disciple whom he loved. Why do you not get any pictures of Jesus cussing out the Pharisees? You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath 
We never get that Jesus. We never get pictures of the Jesus in our Sunday school literature where he's overturning the money changers' tables and he's making a whip out of cords and he's beating people with that whip and he's forbidding anybody to carry anything through the temple for a whole day by the force of his anger and his personality. We never get that Jesus. Why? Because we want to see Jesus this way. And therein lies the problem. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, God is, uh, Moses is going over the law of God again with the people for the last time before he dies. And if you, want, if you have a Bible before you, in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 15, God says something very interesting. Deuteronomy 4, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the fifth book in your Bible, and chapter 4 and verse 15. Can I get everybody to silence their cell phone? We've had a rash of cell phone noise for the last few weeks. It's kind of, let's, let's correct that, shall we? Just put it on silent. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 15. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, and the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven, you will be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and has brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people for his own inheritance as you are this day. You saw no form on the mountain. And the reason, God says, that you saw no form is because earthly eyes could never behold, could never understand the infinite God. And so, he says, your temptation is going to be to take some earthly thing and make it a symbol of that which you did not see. And it's interesting that twice in the history of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, they did exactly that. When Moses was up on the mountain for so long, the people thought, he's dropped dead. And they appointed Joshua as their new leader, and they say, uh, we, need, we need a culturally appropriate representation of the God that brought us out of Egypt. We're scared. And we don't know where Moses is. And so Aaron made a golden calf and said, you look in the Hebrew, here is the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Now, Moses or Aaron knew and the people knew that no cow led them out of Egypt. Why did they pick a calf? Well, in that culture, in that day, the calf was a symbol of wealth, a symbol of great power, a symbol of prosperity and opportunity and hope for the future. 
The calf spoke of all those things. That thing's going to grow up and become your tractor. That's going to be your lunch and your dinner for your children. That's going to be the way that you make more calves. So this is a really special thing. And so they took all of that meaning and they put it, they freighted it and said, this is, this is what God is to us and we're going to worship him via the image of a calf. Later on in the Old Testament, when the, the nation of Israel split, they had a civil war and they split north and south. Uh, the Yankees up north, um, the, their king was afraid for the people of Israel to go down uh, to the, the southern kingdom, to Jerusalem, to worship. He was afraid that that would turn their hearts away from him. So he made temples he made one in the south and one in the north, and he, and he put golden bulls in the temple. And most scholars think that he wasn't intending the people to worship the bull, but what he was doing was saying, look, the Canaanites, our neighbors whose culture we share, they always portray their god, Baal, as riding on the shoulders, standing on the shoulders of a bull. And so what we're going to do is we're going to put those same bulls here, but we're not going to picture any, anything to picture God. But we're going, to, we're going to imagine in our hearts that our God is coming to us riding on the shoulders of this golden bull. Because that was culturally appropriate for them. That was meaningful for them. They liked it. And God hated it. And he called it a very great sin. We don't need to be stuck in our Old Testaments to see this. When we go to the great cathedrals of Europe, the magnificent chapels of Italy, we find this commandment openly violated. God is portrayed as a very muscular old man in the Sistine Chapel portrayal of the creation of Adam. We find uh, the same sorts of images in the stained glass windows in many churches, probably many churches here in Youngstown, which is why when the reformers, in Scotland in particular, uh, turned Scotland into a Protestant country, one of the things they did was smash all that stuff. They smashed the, the windows that had the pictures in them, they smashed the statues and the icons, because they said, this leads the hearts of the people astray. Why is this a problem? Secondly, it's a problem because it's absurd and unlawful to worship God as an image or by means of an image because it is an affront to his presence. In Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 3, it says that Jesus is greater than Moses in exactly the same way as the builder of a house is greater than the house. In other words, the creator is greater than the creation. And the creator is here. He is present among us. And to focus our attention while he, we are worshiping him on something that we made is an affront to him. It would be like you were on a trip and you hadn't seen your wife in a month. And you came home from the trip and you were so excited. And you sat down in the living room on the couch across from your wife, and you held up her picture, and you were like, I love you so much, and just started talking to the picture. And she's like, oh, yo, I'm over here. I'm over here. Pay attention to me. That's what we do when we bring any kind of an image into our worship. There was an old uh, Puritan, uh, he was one of the Westminster divines named Thomas Watson, who said, is it not an absurd thing to bow down to the king's picture when the king is present? 
it is more so to bow down to an image of God when God himself is everywhere present. In, in the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches, images are a large part of their worship. The Orthodox Church in particular has a very robust theology concerning sacred images called icons. And they actually believe that certain images, these icons, are actually vehicles of God's revelation to instruct his people. They actually spiritually instruct the Christian and are in fact just like another Bible. And so if you go into an Orthodox church, and they are beautiful places very often, if you go into an Orthodox church, there is a great stand behind the altar, and it's called an iconostasis or an icon stand, and it holds several wooden, they're flat boards with pictures painted on them of saints and the Virgin Mary and Christ. And they are brought out from time to time during special seasons of the worship of the church, and people bow down to them. And they kiss them. And they venerate them. This is a direct violation of the second commandment. Now, when you ask them to defend this practice, they will tell you that they are not worshiping the image. Rather, they will say they are worshiping God through the image. It gives them a focus for their attention. Now, one of the things that's happened in our culture is we have become a very image-oriented, visually-oriented people because of our smartphones and TVs and things like that. And images are once again becoming very powerful vehicles of conveying ideas. And so there's, you're going to see a push in the next years, a push to start turning towards images as ways of contemplating God or contemplating the spiritual life. It's just going to happen because people are not persuaded anymore by rational argument and systematic presentation of the truth. They want to be moved, and images can do that very often. And I would, I would respond to them in, in, with two points. I would say that, first of all, the pagans make the same argument to justify their, the worship of their strange gods. No pagan truly believes that the statue that was made with human hands that they bought down the street in the market is actually their god. They believe it represents their god. They may even believe that it somehow makes their god present or closer to them. Well, this is exactly what the Orthodox and the Catholics are saying about their images. So, God, the, second, the second thing I would say is that God has not commanded them to do so. We tend to come to the things of God with a sort of a, a find the loophole mentality. Like, like, you know, when your kids were little in the back seat of the car and one of them would hit the other one and, and the child that got hit would protest and the parent would say, don't hit your sister. And so the, the child who did the hitting would go, okay. But then she would start poking, right? Start poking. And, and the parent then gets exasperated because the child who's being poked is now, you know, complaining about that. And you, you, you yell at the child in the back seat. You said, leave your, leave your sister alone. I told you to leave her alone. No, you told me not to hit her. And I'm not hitting her. I'm just poking her, right? You didn't say I couldn't poke her. Well, in the commandment to not hit your sister, really what we're saying is leave her alone. Quit picking on her. Quit doing mean things to her. 
And that's kind of how God deals with us. God says, don't make images to use in worship. Don't bow down to images. And mankind says, how about just having him in the stained glass windows? How about just putting him in the Sunday school material for the, the children? And then before that as well, you know, how about just having a, a um, how about just having one in the sanctuary just to kind of help us focus our attention on God? And it's not long before people are bowing down before them and crossing themselves and, and using them uh, in all kinds of other ways, adoring them. And God said, look, all of this needs to go. And the reformers understood that. We're not to bring anything. The reformers actually taught that we're not to bring anything into our worship except that which God has explicitly commanded. In other words, silence from God on an issue does not equal permission to do what you want to do on that issue. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to make that argument for you very quickly. I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Leviticus in chapter 10. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And we're going to meet two guys, two rather unfortunate guys. These are the sons of Aaron. And their names are Nadab and Abihu. Now, Nadab and Abihu were priests, like their dad, and part of their duties was to conduct the evening, the morning and the evening sacrifice on the altar of the incense. Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 1, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. The way that's phrased is very important. Which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. What happened? What's the big deal? Fire's fire, right? Wrong. Look at what the Lord says through Moses. By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all people, I must be glorified. So what did these guys do? Well, to make this sacrifice, you needed two things. Fire, coals, live coals, and incense. And God had kindled a, a, a fire on the altar, and they were to keep that fire burning. And he didn't say, only get coals from there. But when fire falls from heaven and falls on the altar and lights a fire for you to make the sacrifice, that's what God wants you to do. Now, we don't know what happened. Maybe they let it go out. Uh, maybe uh, there's some indication a little bit later on because Moses says, don't let anybody who's been drinking come and try and do this and draw near to the Lord. So maybe they were kind of half in the bag. Maybe it was Super Bowl Sunday and, and uh, they were just a little lit. But... Um, and we don't know where they got the fire from. You know, somebody's cooking fire, we don't know. But they thought fire is fire. And so they took this, this fire, and they went before the altar of the Lord, and they threw the incense on this, in the, old, in the King James Version, it calls it strange fire. 
they threw the incense on this strange fire, and God killed them for it. Why? Because it says he had not commanded them to do that. In other words, you do what he says, but you don't do anything he doesn't say where his worship is concerned. Now, there's a principle here that's even deeper. God actually has a way he wants to be worshipped. We tend to think of worship as sort of this expressive emotional effulgence that barfs out of us when we're excited about God. And that is a kind of worship, I think. But God also says there are other things associated with worship, and I get to say how I get to be worshipped. It says in in the book of Hebrews, let us offer true worship to the living God, which means there's such a thing as false worship. To the living God. The first step, he says, I'm going to be holy. Moses says, he's going to, God's going to be holy by, considered holy by those who draw near to him. What's the first step in regarding God as holy it's, and glorifying him? It's obedience. Obedience in the matter of worship means not only abstaining from what he's forbidden, but it also means abstaining from what he has not explicitly commanded. And this is why it says in the Westminster Confession, The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and is so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men. Well, there's the whole evangelical church right there in North America in the 21st century. The suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or in any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. And any kind of worship that does anything other than that is wrong. But the confession goes on to say, there are other ways to mess this up. We can mess this up, says the the larger catechism, by mentally picturing God according to our whims. Sort of the, well, I like to picture God as just a loving father or the celestial mechanic, or the big man upstairs. And what we're saying is, I like to picture God this way because it makes me happy. I don't like to picture them these other ways because those don't make me happy. There's a reason why Calvin said the human heart is a factory for idolatry. Because we're constantly looking out for our preferences and saying, God, I want you to be this way and not the way you actually are. We can do it by having pictures of Jesus in our stained glass windows in our Sunday school curriculum. We never, Protestants never had pictures of Jesus in their churches um, until, say, I'd say the last hundred years or so, uh, particularly after World War I, and then again there was a big uptick after World War II. You say, well, what's wrong with a picture of Jesus? He was a, he was a human being, wasn't he? Human beings are visible. This is true. But Thomas Watson, the Puritan divine, said, here's why. He said, it is Christ's Godhead united to his manhood that makes him Christ. An image can only picture his manhood. Therefore, when we make an image, we separate that which God has joined together and leave out the chief thing that made him Christ. Calvin puts it this way, whatever visible forms of God man devises are diametrically opposed to his nature. 
Therefore, as soon as idols appear, true religion is corrupted and adulterated. And isn't it odd that when you go back historically and just look at the things that were happening at the same time, Protestants started using images in their worship and began making pictures of Jesus for our churches, that, that, the, that first two things were happening. First of all, the pictures we made were of this namby-pamby Jesus who didn't look like he could hurt a fly. And second of all, that was the era when doctrine was being corrupted in the extreme. And in all these mainline denominational churches, they were ordaining men into the ministry who didn't believe in the virgin birth, didn't believe in the resurrection of Christ, didn't believe in the sufficiency of the scriptures, thought they knew better than everybody else about everything else, and they were going to remake the world with the social gospel because everybody was a good person and we were all nice, and if we just get a little education and a little health care, we'll all be much nicer and the world will be paradise. We don't believe any of these old superstitions anymore. And they started at the same time, I think to keep the hearts of the people from understanding what they were doing, began filling the church with these images of Christ that portrayed Christ in a way that suited their agenda. And we've been kicking those pictures around for a hundred years. The pictures that show us a namby-pamby Jesus, a weenie Jesus, incapable of anger or judgment, knowing that the people will get their theology about Jesus from the pictures instead of the living Lord and his living word. And so the pictures led the people astray. We can violate this commandment by adding to worship that which God did not command. We can violate this commandment um, in so many other ways. And God says, look, I want you to know that I am serious about this. And so God adds a threat and a promise in the commandment. He says, I am a jealous God. In what way? Well, he's a jealous God in the same way that I'm a jealous husband and my wife is a jealous wife. We're not going to share each other with anyone else. We're just not going to do it. And God says, sinning against me in this area will bring consequences unto the third and fourth generation. He's not saying that he punishes one person for the sins of another. He's actually explicitly said in 2 Chronicles 25 and Ezekiel 28 that he does not do that. But what he is saying is that sin has a way of snowballing and going from generation to generation wreaking havoc because God designed us to be the kind of creature that transmits spiritual things through generations. And that works for the good and that works for the evil. And in his mercy, God limited it to three or four generations. Now, if you know anything about abuse and you study the psychology of abuse and the family dynamics of abuse, you will discover that very often it, you have a severe abuse situation and then the next generation has a less severe and the next generation has a less severe and then maybe by the fourth or the fifth generation that's kind of resolved out and gotten healed. And so we see that principle in action in our psychological counseling and research. He doesn't punish one person for the sins of another. What he's saying is, you will transmit something to your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. It will either be good things that the Lord has given you, blessings, or it will be cursings. Think very carefully about what you do. It will affect your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. 
And that's the way God set things up. And that's why, that's why the fall of man was a disaster. God says, obedience to me bears fruit, not for three or four generations, unto a thousand generations. Isn't it interesting that we are most tempted to break this commandment and make pictures of the Lord for our children? for their storybooks and their Sunday school classes, to visually engage them. And God says, don't do this for your children's sake. Notice also, how is it that God says we know if a person loves God? He says, if you obey my commandments to him who loves me and keeps my commandments. Jesus says the same thing. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Conversely, how do we know if a person hates God? They disregard his commandments. And so every act of disobedience is, in effect, a declaration of hatred against God. One week I was um, at a, one time I was at a Bible study and we were discussing what the Bible says about spiritualists and mediums and tarot, tarot cards and fortune telling and all that stuff came up. And the subject of the, the Ouija board came up. And the question was asked, should we play with them even as a game? I said, absolutely not. My own family, that actually, not my immediate family, but in the generations before me, that actually was a vehicle to introduce some really bad things into my grandparents' house. And I said, absolutely not. And there was a certain gentleman there who stubbornly insisted that this was stupid, that anything made by Milton Bradley could not be a vehicle of the devil. There was nothing wrong with these things, he said. He didn't believe they were anything other than a piece of cardboard or masonite. And because he didn't think that there was any big deal there, he wasn't convinced and wasn't going to be convinced that there was anything wrong with them, regardless of what the Word of God says. And his attitude was a common one. He said, I'll decide for myself what's right and what's wrong. And if I don't think it's wrong, I'll do what I please. And that attitude manifests itself nowhere more clearly than in this second commandment. And God comes and he cuts through all that nonsense and he says, if you love me, you will do as I command. And if you refuse to do what I command and go your own way, then you don't love me and one day you will bear the consequences of that hatred. There was a, an ancient theologian of the early church named Augustine. He lived in North Africa, in, place, in what's today Tunisia. And he had a wonderful saying. He said, if you pick and choose what you're going to believe out of the Bible, then you don't believe the Word of God. You just believe yourself. You are the ultimate authority. This is the very Word of God. Listen to it and decide what you're going to do. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, for you are my rock and my redeemer.